the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. A party in Carlton. The turntablist, just another face in the crowd, waits in resignation for the moment to arrive as it surely would at every party he attended. And it does. Rocky Horror's Time Warp plays. Squeals from the far corners of the party signal a group of girls to push everyone out of the way, clear a zone in the centre of the crowd and re-enact the songs every step, yelling the words to each other, their faces inches apart. The party resumes. Three hours later... Rocky Horror's Time Warp plays again. Squeals from the far corners of the party signal a group of girls to push everyone out of the way, clear a zone in the centre of the crowd and re-enact the songs every step, yelling the words to each other, their faces inches apart. The turntablist takes this opportunity to case the joint. He finds the hidden side room where the turntable sits. The party resumes... 30 minutes later, squeals from the far corners of the party signal a group of girls to push everyone out of the way, clear a zone in the centre of the crowd and reenact the songs every step, yelling the... You know how it goes. Two songs later, somewhat muted squeals from the far corners of the party a slightly self-conscious reenactment of the song's every step in shoes with rather less yelling. The very next song... Confusion reigns. The girls look upset and several partygoers are yelling obscenities. The host bursts into the hidden side room where the turntable sits. There he finds the turntablist, guiltily attempting to... Mind his own business. The host. What the fuck do you think you're doing? The turntablist. Um. Had the term existed in the early 80s, I would have called myself a turntablist. That is, I like to use a turntable to annoy the fuck out of people. Though DJ Shadow may dispute the veracity of this definition. I had made a series of tapes. Shall we call them mixtapes? where I took classic rock songs and using percussively applied jabs with the finger on the turntable, fuck with them. I particularly patted myself on the back for my subtlety. I would pop a mixtape on when we were hanging out with friends and see how long it would take for people to start noticing something odd. In Fleetwood Mac's Rhiannon, I went very subtle, trying to just slightly warp the music in between the vocal bits so that you couldn't tell, but nevertheless felt uncomfortable.
Bohemian Rhapsody, I applied only one touch, repeatedly turning the fifth note of the song's trademark six-note piano figure into a hideous boing. You can only get away with this shit for so long, until you get a reputation among your friends, i.e. he's a fucking weirdo. But it was worth it for the first time I would see someone stop mid-sentence and go, is there something wrong with the tape player? My turntablism helped me survive parties. At one, I located the one floorboard in the room which, when surreptitiously stamped on, could make the turntable jump and proceeded to amuse myself timing my interventions randomly so the know-it-all party turntable takeover merchants were left scratching their heads examining the vinyl for non-existent impurities. All very funny until the host discovered my little wheeze and with a look of hurt indignation asked me to leave. Wow, what a fucking rebel. Not exactly Axel Rose, am I? But perhaps you're thinking it does make me a sociopath. Being a turntablist doesn't translate to the humble old-fashioned jukebox. My friends and I used to spend a lot of time in Ligon Street Café Lalba, famous subsequently for being Alphonse Gangitano's hangout, but we only used to go there to eat gelati and look longingly at Italian girls. They had a jukebox, and I hit upon the fantastic idea to get all my and my friends' remaining coins and program the same song over and over. The song, selected very deliberately to annoy, was Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz. I'd collected enough coins to make sure Making Your Mind Up would play 11 times in a row. There was always a lot of ambient noise in Lulba, animated chatter, the cappuccino machine hissing and people playing Gallagher. So I was sure that, hopefully, we'd get through a few plays before anyone would notice. In fact, we had a bit of a bet among us to see how many times the song would play before staff would come out and start fiddling with the machine. I was ready to scan the room to notice heads turning with that look of slightly indignant alarm. And then the jukebox just played 11 randomly selected tracks. The jukebox makers obviously had seen me coming. Years later, in that other band of mine, I started out thinking I would add my turntablist skills to the mix. During the breakdown section of our first single, there I am, scratching a piece of vinyl, not on a deck or even turntable, but on a record player bought for 50 bucks from a pawn shop. This meant no handy immediate stop function, no smoothly revolving belt-driven action, but a clunky, antiquated machine which strained in protest as I made heavy-handed modifications to the Beatles yesterday until an odd smell began to emanate and I'd have to go back to the pawn shop. After doing it on one song, I couldn't be fucked. Was I Australian rock's first record scratcher? Okay, that's probably a bit of a stretch. 
Welcome to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. This week's episode of Only the Shit You Love, the web series, features our star turntablist Greta the Garbo spinning discs at Remember, the secret lair where the free nostalgia movement meets. This episode also features the faces and cameo voices of five of my most VIP crowdfunding patrons. Ben Andrew, Sam Boddy, Alastair Calder, Luke Devlin and Jeff Rossiter. I hope you're not too frightened of your appearances as a cartoon, gentlemen. I thank you and raise a glass to your good health. At this point in the story, we're deeply into nostalgia now, right up to our chops in it. This podcast has been, for 15 episodes now, my rambling evocation of a time in my music career which, hopefully, you find interesting, dear listener. And I ain't gonna stop now. Last episode, I was describing Melbourne's deeply pretentious post-punk scene of the early 80s. Existing in its own little strange universe, far from the mainstream, it was a scene that fairly bristled with one-upmanship, based on how serious, challenging and ultimately how far up your own velvet underground you could get. And in this heady reality show of a pop microcosm, The Bachelor was most definitely Hugo Race. Let's fast forward from there about five years. It's the club in Collingwood. Backstage, 6pm. My band, that famous one, are getting ready to play one of their earliest ever gigs. Melbourne underground rock legend and star of the movie Dogs in Space, Hugo Race, is inexplicably there, setting up the lighting rig, accompanied by his hauntingly beautiful yet slightly damaged and prone to acts of theatrical self-harm at parties girlfriend, with whom he has a passionate yet frequently traumatic relationship. He encounters me, entering the backstage area carrying a bag of balloons and a water pistol. Hugo, have you guys got your rider yet? Me, what's a rider? Hugo, what's a rider? Oh Christ, who are these people? Hauntingly beautiful yet slightly damaged and prone to acts of theatrical self-harm at parties girlfriend with whom he has a passionate yet frequently traumatic relationship. Ugh, spew. Arguably, the movie Dogs in Space was scripted and produced specifically to enrage people like me. If you want the treehouse factor wrapped up in one big tasty shit souvlaki, there it was. A full-length movie detailing the boring, clichéd non-escapades of a bunch of despicable St Kilda Trust Fund rebels gravitating to heroin with the startling originality of a Benny Hill punchline. One of the actors calls himself Nick Needles, says the prosecution, resting its case. And if that wasn't fabulous enough, it was responsible for launching the tragically short cinematic career of Hugo Race. Hugo Race doesn't feature much in any books not written by Hugo Race. Given that, I think he was mainly remembered as Chicken Hawk to Nick Cave's Foghorn Leghorn. But for a while there, in the early days of that other band of mine, you would have thought he was the most important man in our life. Dashingly handsome, lock of unruly hair permanently flopping over one eye, dangerous rep preceding him, 
Hugo was everything you'd want a treehouse kid to be. By the time of our encounter at the club, he was already on my radar, having seen his first band plays with marionettes and heard the resident heroin dealer at Melbourne's poshest school, Urban Myth. And there's nothing quite as fun as having your prejudices confirmed. For starters, how could you name your kid Hugo and not expect some Springvale kid with a chip on his shoulder about private schools not to hate him? Just saying the word Hugo immediately transports you to a heritage-listed balustrade overlooking the hand-scissored green of Hamster Grammar's third eleven cricket pitch. I say, Reginald, did you hear about Tompkins of the Sixth? Laudanum overdose. Oh, well, Ewese, the bounder had it coming. That type of thing. Hugo became like a reverse muse. Every time he popped up in an interview... My friend Peter and I would be straight on the phone quoting it to each other. His latest band was called The Wreckery, which sounded like rectory, all cloistered halls and diplomat sons, sprinkled with a predictable dose of absinthe dissipation. They even had an album hilariously titled Here at Payne's Insistence. The interview would be barely syllables old before Hugo would drop his first straight-faced depth charge of pretentiousness, like, you only fully understand the blues when you've lived them. I would then imagine a driftwood shack on the Mississippi, 13 crying children, and there, sitting on a piece of busted chiffre robe, would be Hugo Race, reading Voltaire. And so, when picking on Nick Cave got tiring, It was always Hugo Race and how we picked on him in those early days, featuring his frowningly handsome face in a poster called Doggies in Space and even name-checking him in a song. Gratuitous, really. Would Hugo have known or even cared? It's unlikely. But if he'd realised he was in some way responsible for the emergence of that band, well, even he would have struggled to take that as a compliment. Our interest bordered on obsession, though really it was just laziness. Why look around when you've got a golden goose? We even picked on Hugo's erstwhile guitarist, Nick Barker, who was reputedly a nice bloke. That didn't stop the old joke. Why did you call yourselves Tism? Because Nick Barker and the reptiles was already taken. Hell hath no fury like a treehouse stalker scorned. Meanwhile, back in post-punk early 80s, pop music was considered manifestly beneath one's artistic sensibility. Here's a quote from Hugo himself in Duke magazine from 1983. It's taken us this long to get wise to how small the collective mind of an audience is and how long it takes them to catch on to what we're doing. That's post-punk for you and ready to launch itself headlong into post-punk's lower divisions was a band called I Can Run. Same four boys, me, Huge, Sean and Jack. Tall stories by another name. Well, actually, we'd been a couple of other names as well. For about a whole day, we were the men from UNCO, which I think is one of my better ones, but, you know, can't be gadding about in this terribly serious post-punk era with a silly name like that, so it didn't stick. We'd also been the Go Code for a bit. That had a bit more seriousness about it, 
sounded sort of mod, which was alright by me. Mod had a completely different meaning in Melbourne's early 80s compared to the term that seemed to appear in the later part of that decade, denoting anyone who looked a bit alternative. Mod was of course one of the first genuine youth subcultures in 60s Britain. It had its own very specific look, absolutely nothing like the so-called mods of Melbourne's late 80s. Mod was Italian-inspired sharp suit fashion, complete with its own mode of transport, the scooter, and soul and R&B music, drug of choice amphetamines. It had a brief phase in sunny Oz around the same time, I think, and then resurfaced during the post-punk era as the pastime of tiny groups of fanatical revivalists. Like a bunch of 60s car enthusiasts at a rally, they would pull up in their vespers and congregate Friday nights in a pub, now long gone, on the corner of Punt and Bridge Roads, Richmond, at a club called the Bat Cave, where a whippet-like guy called Ronnie appeared to have styled himself as the face, mod terminology for the most stylish guy in the pack. I really loved the fashion, still do, and the music, particularly the English mod icons, The Who and later Paul Weller. But I thought the idea of being a mod in 1980 Melbourne and following all those rules was a bit silly. The Go Code had a sort of speed-taking vibe about the name, although the only speed I was doing was slightly over 60 before the rivets in my Ford Escort began to rattle apart. The Go Code also reflected our permanent fear of nuclear Armageddon, which seemed to be at its zenith around the turn of the decade. But we didn't go for the name. As usual, we went for a name that meant nothing and sounded sort of bland. That's what consensus voting gets you. I can run. Inspired by the first book we read as kids in grade prep, I suppose we thought we were reacting against bands that affected wanky literary illusions in their names. I Can Run tried so very hard to be serious, and we tried to avoid being a pop band. We now had a new rehearsal room in St Kilda where we spent night after night extemporising on random grooves. We were attempting some kind of organic songwriting approach. That kind of thing's all very well if you're early hunters and collectors and your repetition is considered mantra-like, as opposed to 
plain boring. Mostly, it's plain boring. When I hear a band saying they work their songs up as studio improvisations, I tend to fear the worst. The Yeah Yeah Yeah's Mosquito and Blur's The Magic Whip are two recent examples I can think of where I'm just wishing they'd gone away and figured out some ideas before they went into the studio. And in I Can Run, after making tape after tape of jams going nowhere, we started sneaking in verses and choruses because our need for melody meant we couldn't help ourselves. Later, I would put deliberately non-rhyming lyrics onto them. These were my first proper attempt at serious lyrics, and I took the easy way out. Write stuff based on things I know, but make it so vague that nobody else knows what you're on about and therefore can't criticise you. This is the basis of 90% of pop and rock lyric writing. Sounds kind of poetic, but you'll never really know if it's poetic or pathetic. And mine didn't even rhyme. How easy was that? She's on the ladder Shaking in the wind She has a list Written on her face She's on the ladder She's on the ladder She's on the ladder She's on the ladder Can Run tried to be weird, but we were subtly, politely weird. Not the sort of weird that would make you look up from your drink. I've been away. 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 shit, I'm not saying that. We were pretty good, if you were our friends and came along to invest your time in us and really listen. But who, apart from friends, does that? No one did. And because this was our third shot at being a band and we were experiencing the same thing again, don't know anyone in the know, don't know how to get gigs, don't know how to get anyone to pay attention when we do get a gig, it was starting to seem like early Hunters and Collectors, a bit repetitious. I Can Run lasted barely a year. First gig, December 82, last gig, July 83. Seven in total, 
including that night I mentioned in episode one at the Marquee Room where the former guitarist from Secret Police never paid us and never asked us back again. By the end of I Can Run, my musical world was transforming again and the catalyst was New Order. Not because I really liked Joy Division. I never bought the hype about Joy Division. I had a couple of records, but it was all a bit dirgy and tuneless for mine and all that Ian Curtis' tragic heartthrob stuff put me right off. My preferred option when it came to doom-laden music was the Comsat Angels, who were much more tuneful and powerful sounding and had a nice decal line in introverted despair. from the grave of Joy Division, and for me the best thing about them was their record sleeves. Designed by Peter Saville, they were the apotheosis of 12-inch record art, absolutely beautiful, as were all the record sleeves from Factory Records, their label. It was graphic art, subtle and futurist, yet somehow ancient. One sleeve just had the catalogue number in huge, weird, stylish font, and no mention of the band name or song title. Another sleeve looked like a giant floppy disk. New Order's first album was still pretty dirgy, and they still couldn't sing very well. But then something happened. They bought a drum machine. From Everything's Gone Green to Confusion to Temptation and the famous Blue Monday, they shifted their sound and turned my head. This was a cool, slightly doomy English band with arty record sleeves making dance music. Dance music. The more I listened to it in my bedroom, the more I realised how I loved the beat. The music was still really interesting. The bass playing of Peter Hook, for instance, like a lead melody, gave them this really distinctive flavour. But the beat made it twice as good. Intelligent dance music. I needed the intelligent part of that sentence to let my snooty ego accept it, but the dance part was actually what was setting off the chemicals in my brain. I went to Hands Music in Ringwood and bought a Roland TR-606 Dramatics drum machine. Only the bits I love. From that moment onwards, the lure of the dance beat was never far away from me. Ten years later, I was listening to a Friday night radio show on Triple R called Transmission, which played a lot of the dance style they called trance, including this bloke, a German who called himself Cosmic Baby. My new obsession led to a radical spring clean of my own band, that famous one. 
You might even notice a trace of Cosmic Baby in that band's song, How Do I Love Thee? And it all started because of a bunch of great record sleeves. You don't get that on fucking Spotify. See you next time. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time.